Well, who'd have thought a year ago that the RBA cash rate would be well over 4% with the chance of more to come? Who'd have thought generally interest rates around the world were going to be higher and longer? Back then, when there was no connection between table mountain and monetary theory. And who'd have thought we could cope with these higher interest rates without seeing a recession just about anywhere? So this year was full of surprises. What about next year? The Morning Call from NAB with Phil Dobby. Weekend edition. So, what a year it's been. It's fair to say, as we went into the year, there was no clear idea of how the year would end up. Were we too optimistic? Certainly, many expected inflation would come down sooner, that interest rates would peak lower. But then, as the year went on, we wavered from soft landing in the US to a talk of recession, a conversation that's been had for many countries around the world. So, where does that leave us now? Just as we didn't expect interest rates to get as high as they did, are we optimistic? expecting that they will fall early in the new year. Well, let's look back today and look forward with Sally Ald from JB Weir. Let's start locally, Sally. We did have this strange idea, didn't we, I think, that we were going to be exempt from the worst of it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you if you, if you look back and, and have a look at where economists were sort of forecasting the cash rate to peak out in 2023 here in Australia, it was you know, probably somewhere just above three and a half percent. And as it turned out, we, we got past that and, and into the fours. Um, and I, and I think, you know, that just sort of reflects this, this theme of, you know, that we saw in other parts of the world, just underestimating, you know, the resilience of, of economies to, you know, what, what are by historical standards, pretty aggressive tightening cycles. Yeah, because we kept on spending, didn't we? I mean, that was that word resilience. How many times have we heard that mentioned in the last year? A lot, I think. Um, and yes, I think consumer spending was a big part of it. And so, you know, that's been the, the I guess, the, the surprise for a lot of forecasters and, and probably, you know, for the, for the banks as well, which is that, they, they ordinarily, you know, if you'd said the cash rate's going to go from 10 basis points to 4.35 in, in quick order, um, you know, there, there would have been a fair bit of concern about, you know, the bad debts on, on bank, bank balance sheets. And, and of course, none of that's happened. And I think in part, it's because, you know, we knew that there was a significant amount of household savings sitting on, on, household balance sheets that could really cushion that whole experience. We knew there were, you know, quite a few households on fixed rate mortgages. So at least for the the first little while of the tightening cycle, they had some protection there. And of course the labor market, you know, has has held in very, very well. And and basically the unemployment rate is is really only a touch off its cyclical low. And so for all those reasons, it's meant that, you know, households have been very resilient and mortgage arrears are, are very low and and in some cases below pre-pandemic levels. So I think um, you know, that's that's not a bad place to be starting twenty twenty four. But what about house prices? I mean we're starting twenty twenty four with them higher. I mean mm-hmm. they did dip a little uh, with the pandemic, but generally, I mean, even though we've had a pandemic and then we've had high interest rates, uh, house prices continue to rise uh, much higher than they were before the pandemic. Okay, we've had a period of immigration, high immigration. Uh, that will have impacted a great deal. But it does raise the question what does it take to slow the rate of house price growth in Australia? Yeah, that's right. So I think, you know, if you look at the the national average, um, house prices or dwelling prices are up almost 8% on the year. Um, and again, you know, probably not what most economists would have expected if you'd said, um, you know, we're going to have over 400 basis points worth of rate hikes. But I think the story there is really um, the demographic one. And this is all about, you know, the the huge population growth that we've had over over the past 12 months where we're, you know, the population has grown almost 3%. 
Um, and we're looking at sort of around, you know, depending on what sort of 12 month period you look at anywhere from half a million to, to sort of close to 600,000 people coming into the country. And so, the house price story is really just a reflection of supply versus demand and the demand shot up with all these people coming into the country. And we know that supply of housing is is very inelastic in the short run. And hence the only sort of release valve or escape valve um, were higher rents and higher house prices. Mm, and higher bond yields as well. I mean, we wouldn't have thought that at the beginning of this year, that bond yields would get quite as high as they did. Yeah, well, that's been the silver lining, you know, from certainly from an investor's perspective is that, you know, one asset class where we can genuinely say that it has repriced to reflect the high yield environment that we're in, driven by these aggressive tightening cycles, um, is fixed income. And, you know, we saw 10-year treasuries in the US touch 5%. We haven't seen those sorts of levels since, you know, I think pre-GFC. Um, but locally, you know, what this meant was that, you know, a number of, you know, what you would call really high quality corporates in Australia were issuing debt um, and depending on you know how how that debt was structured, in some cases um, yielding you know six and a half, seven, and some in sometimes over seven percent. So you know for a lot of investors, and we certainly saw that at JB Weir, you know we've seen huge flows into fixed income because from an investor's perspective, they're thinking these are almost equity like returns um, for an asset class that typically plays a more defensive role in your portfolio, and you know for much lower levels of volatility. Um, and so that's been a phenomenally popular, I think, spot for capital over the course of this year. And the word recession, I think we're using that a great deal this time last year. You know, can you keep on pushing up interest rates without expecting a downturn in the economy for the United States, for Europe, for even, you know, for this part of the world as well? Can you do that? Well, the answer is apparently yes, you can. Uh, it looks like the idea of a recession has, you know, maybe in Europe, but in other parts of the world, it's not looking likely. We weren't expecting that, were we? No, not at all. Um, and I think, you know, we were um, of the view at JB Weir that we thought the the US would go into recession, and that was partly, you know, because um, you know, as as the Fed was hiking rates, um, Jay Powell was, you know, really quite hawkish and very clear about saying, um, you know, we'll do whatever it takes to bring inflation under control. Um, and ordinarily, you know, you would think that that means that you know they're willing to push the economy into recession. And historically, you know, that's actually what what happens is that if you want to engineer these material disinflations, you actually really need often, um, you know, to, to force an adjustment on the broader economy. But, you know, so far in the US, they've avoided a recession. And we we just saw, um, you know, with the FOMC, that's December meeting, you know, they were downgrading this year's inflation forecast and upgrading this year's GDP forecast. So that's a that's a pretty nice sort of outcome. So a Fed a Fed funds rate of five and a half percent, and you know they have been shrinking the balance sheet, so pursuing quantitative tightening, and yet the economy is probably going to grow about two and a half percent, and you know should add somewhere between two and a half and three million jobs through the year. So why then? I mean, how did they get away with it? Well, I think you know fiscal support um, you know played a really big role in the U.S., and so you know we saw the Biden administration you know really push. On these big initiatives, so whether that's the Inflation Reduction Act, um, you know, which which has huge subsidies and support for, you know, directing funds into to, to particular areas, um, also the Chips Act, you know, which is all about sort of manufacturing capability um, in in the US. Um, again, a bit similar to Australia, very high levels of household savings. Um, and I think also, you know, a household sector that basically by the very nature of the US mortgage market was very well insulated against higher rates. And so if you had, you know, at the height of COVID taken out a 30 year fixed rate mortgage at around a 3%, then sort of 
don't really care what the Fed's doing, um, you know, unless you need to need to sell your house and buy another one somewhere else. So I think all those things have, you know, really deli- delivered an outcome of US exceptionalism, you know, through 2023. And that's obviously been pretty powerful story for most of the year for the US dollar. And yet we've seen equity markets continuing to rise. Uh, I mean, that's a bit unusual as well. So what is the reasoning behind that? I mean, we've heard uh, a bit about, you know, companies profit taking, I mean, passing passing on the margins for the, the, the extra costs. Is that part of it? Yeah, look, I think that's been part of the story. So earnings growth did slow through the year. So I think that's important to to acknowledge. But, you know, this is, again, one thing that's probably surprised policymakers, you know, in the US and also in Australia, which is that if the demand backdrop remains pretty resilient, um, you know, as a business, even though your input costs are going up, you, you just pass that on to end consumers. And so you can protect your margin in, in that sort of environment. Um, and so I think that's that's obviously been a support to equities. But really the story... You know, has been very sector specific, and it's really been about the tech sector. And so people talk about the Magnificent Seven, and um, you know that they have really basically dragged the whole S and P five hundred higher. And if you look at what analysts like to call an equal weight S and P five hundred, where we give equal weight everything, the index is only up sort of six percent. So it's really been driven by those those big tech stocks. Um, and you know, I think the artificial intelligence is is partly behind that story um you know because they're all sort of seen to be able to to leverage and to deliver good profit growth on the back of those sorts of initiatives um but having said that you know that was also a sector that massively underperformed in in 2022 so um, didn't have a great year last year, but had a cracking year this year. Yeah, and two letters, AI, that seems to have got everybody excited as well. Let's see mm. if that lasts. Uh, and also, we went into the year assuming that China would just bounce back with its reopening, but it didn't, did it? Yeah, that's right. So big expectations for China. I think, you know, people anticipating that just as we saw in most other economies, you know, these really big, strong rebounds post um you know, lockdowns being over, that just didn't happen um, in China. And I think part of the story there with the benefit of hindsight was just simply that the Chinese authorities just never provided the same amount of support and stimulus to Chinese households and businesses, you know, as was the case in many other Western economies. And so, um, you know, most most economists spent the year sort of taking out their red pen and marking down their forecasts for Chinese economic growth. Um, so a bit of a disappointment there, but then, you know, eventually, eventually the, the authorities, um, got on board and we've, we've started to see just in, in the last three to four months, you know, a a whole sequence of effectively policy decisions right across different parts of the economy. But I think predominantly aimed at, first of all, putting a floor under Chinese growth. Um, and I think even probably Chinese authorities underestimated like the power Powerful headwind that a deleveraging property sector imposed on on the economy as and, well. Yeah, and the great bond sell-off. Uh, we didn't see that coming, did we? Well, I tell you, someone who didn't see it coming that was Silicon Valley Bank. <laughs> yes, no, they didn't see it coming. Um, look, I don't, I don't know that a lot of us saw it coming. Um, you know, I think probably you know surprised to see U.S. ten-year yields to to five percent. Um, but you know, since then the markets had a, a pretty decent correction lower in yield, and and I think. Uh, again, you know, that's partly because, you know, a lot of investors see a 10-year yield, um, you know, risk-free debt, as we call it, um, at 5% is, is pretty good value for for portfolios. Um, and so, you know, perhaps it was just one of those periods in markets where you get this confluence of pretty powerful factors. So people sort of fretting about the US fiscal situation, people thinking that, you know, there needs to be more term premium. Um, in the market and and people anxious about the the sort of 
pulling back of what you would call price insensitive buyers of bonds. So whether that's, um, you know, central banks, particularly the Fed, or whether you would think maybe commercial banks or, or perhaps offshore investors and all those things sort of seem to hit at once in conjunction with an economy that just continued to surprise on the upside. And I think, you know, that's what gave the impetus for bonds to get, uh, you know, up to those levels. So do we have a clearer idea then of what next year is going to look like compared to how we went into this year? Or could we be as far out in 2024 as we were in 2023? So, you know, could we see that there is perhaps more upside potential uh, or could we be going into it all way too optimistically? Yeah, look, I think, you know, this year's probably been a pretty humbling year for, you know, most forecasters and and strategists um, in the sense that, you know, I think there'd be a very small handful of people who got everything right. Um, and so, you know, that, that probably means that, you know, there's a little less conviction about how 2024 might turn out. But I think there are some things we can say. And so I think, you know, unlike 2023, where we had quite divergent trends in the global economy, so US doing much better than expected, China and Europe weaker than expected, you know, services doing better than people thought, manufacturing softer than people thought. I think next year, we're going to get a more synchronized picture. So, you know, if we look at the consensus forecast for most major economies, growth is expected to slow in all of them or at best be broadly similar to where it was um, this year. And, you know, we'll get subtrend growth in the year ahead for the global economy. And so I think there's a sense that, you know, as as some of these buffers run out, so as, you know, household savings get run down, and we've seen exactly that in Australia, as fiscal policy pulls back a bit, you know, some of these things that have really helped sustain growth in 2023 disappear or fade in 2024. And so that does make you, I think, a little bit cautious about, you know, the growth outlook. But the good news is, is that inflation is con- expected to be lower um, in most economies as as well. So, you know, that will certainly mean that, at some point next year, you would think there will be scope for, for lower rates. And what about China? Are they going to come bouncing back at long last? And what about other emerging markets? It's been a tough time for them. How are they going to fare? So I think China, you know, the, the, the best we can hope for there is that the authorities do enough stimulus to sort of get the economy, you know, onto that 5% growth path, which is, I guess, their target. So, you know, I think they are far more keen to protect the downside than sort of try and achieve upside to that 5% forecast. So that would that would be, I think, where China sits. Um, they will, unlike most other economies, actually register a bit more inflation in 2024 compared to this year, but that's basically because they, they saw deflation for most of this year. So that's not a big call. Um, but I do think we're at a point where it's likely in the year ahead that that emerging markets complex actually outperforms developed market economies. And, and the story there, I think, is probably um, US dollar weakness, if we get a little bit more of that, will help. Um, some of those EM central banks are actually already easing. So um, looser financial conditions are, are starting to to be put in place in those economies. And also, you know, a number of those economies this year have really struggled with high food inflation and that's starting to fade too. So that'll be, you know, I think quite a different flavour to, to next year than we've seen in, in the last couple of years. And are equity markets going to see a correction next year or will they just keep on vaping in that AI optimism in the US at least anyway? And and how does that all play alongside fixed income, which, as you say, has almost become a mm. substitute for, for the growth potential of equity markets? How's, how's that all going to play out next year? Yeah, so I think... You know, I'm not sure, Debbie, where we've got sort of, you know, massively high conviction views on equity markets because we sort of see them being topped and tailed by sort of two different dynamics. You know, on the upside, you would argue it's probably capped by the fact that we're starting the year with above average valuations. So when we look at, you know, PE ratios, they're above long run average for the S&P 500. And we've already got earnings estimates, you know, for the year ahead 
that are double digit and and effectively imply a pretty soft landing. So, no, I guess in a really simple sense, a lot of good news is already um, in the price. But then we don't really worry about um, a huge correction to the downside because we know that central banks have got a fair bit of capacity to cut rates um, through 2024. And so you would argue that that probably protects the downside for, for equity markets um, as as well. And so I think, you know, from our perspective, really equity markets are going to be all about the earnings um, and, and less about, you know, the valuation. And fixed income for us, you know, continues to remain a really key component of portfolios, just given some of those super attractive valuations. Um, and so we've been really banging the table on that for, you know, I think at least a year, if not longer, um, and certainly think that's the the way to continue to structure portfolios as we, as we head into to twenty twenty four. And you would argue that you've got high yields, you've got an outlook for slower growth, lower inflation. That sounds pretty supportive, I mm. think, um, for fixed income in general. Now, one thing uh, we've seen a lot of this last year is mm-hmm. geopolitics, and we know there's going to be even more of it next year. I mean, we had no idea, did we, about the uh, the conflict in Gaza, for example. But we do know that there is going to be a US election later this year. We also know it's going to occupy vast mm-hmm. kilometres of newspaper columns, if uh, newspaper columns isn't an outdated concept. But we also know there's a <laughs> of a Trump win. It could be 2016 all over again, only a more determined Donald Trump. So that's going to have some influence on markets, isn't it? If that's the direction we end up going? Yeah, I think so. Um, and, you know, people are talking about this, but I think they they probably feel it's a little bit too early to be positioning portfolios, um, you know, for you know, potential political outcomes in, in the US. But, you know, hi- history basically tells you that in, in election years, you know, what you tend to find is equity markets do okay, but not a lot up until the election. And then once you take that uncertainty away, you actually get, you know, quite a decent performance um, in that last sort of five or six weeks of the year once the election is over. But I think, you know, if the polls are pointing to uh, a Trump victory, then that could be potentially meaningful for the US dollar because we could be in a world where, you know, we start to talk about tariffs again. Um, and that tends to be, you know, positive for for the US dollar. And if we start to feel like we're in a world that, you know, feels a bit more a bit more noisy and and some of the geopolitics feel a little bit sort of front of mind then that generally probably helps the dollar as well so i think you know it's really a story around the us dollar probably more than anything else um you know if if polls continue to suggest that um, you know, we will see the Republicans take the White House. Yeah, hopefully not by force. Uh, <laughs> so the RBA, well, look, we know the Fed is expecting to be dropping rates uh, in the dots mm. plot. We saw three times next year, I think the market might be expecting a bit more. Uh, at the same time, the RBA might actually be the only ones uh, actually lifting rates still. That's going to be interesting. Yeah, that's right. I think it's, it's you know, it's definitely, definitely possible. And, and that's, you know, why we think that, the Aussie dollar's definitely put in a, you know, it's cyclical trough for, for this cycle and there's there's upside for the currency through 2024, just simply, you know, I think in part on that divergence where, you know, the Fed feels pretty comfortable at 5.5% on their policy rate. And as you said, you know, at the December meeting, you know, they think there's probably scope to cut three times, which is not quite as much as the market's priced in, but, you know, there or thereabouts. Um, and in contrast, you know, I think the RBA at, at a minimum is is going to be you know, far more reluctant to be taking policy lower, um, just simply because you know they are dealing, as as the governor told us a few weeks ago, with a homegrown inflation problem. So the the story for them is really just you know trying to assess whether the current level of rates is is high enough to take some of the heat out of domestic demand and 
um, you know, as our colleagues in NAB economics are forecasting, you know, they think the risk is towards higher rates. And I certainly believe that's the right way to think about the RBA as we start next year. Right. So let's finish off by looking at some of the wild cards, some of the things that could come out of the blue or things that we assume are going to go in one direction, but might actually do a complete swivel. Hmm. So, I mean, you know, there's always lots um, and you never really feel like you can you can put together a comprehensive list. But I guess some of the ones that we've been thinking about are, you know, I think that view of China sort of struggling to to grow much over five, um, if they're lucky, is, is pretty much consensus now. And this idea that they're dealing with these significant structural headwinds around demographics and the deleveraging of the property market. Um, and so I guess one wildcard could be, well, what if China surprises on the upside? Because that then becomes pretty meaningful for commodity prices. Um, and also, obviously, the Aussie dollar. So that's one to perhaps think think about. Um, yeah, you know, if we did see this resilience of of the US economy continue into twenty twenty four, and um, you know, inflation sticky and and growth doesn't slow, then you know, maybe you know, again, at a minimum, we don't get rate cuts, and and the Fed possibly delivers another fifty basis points of rate hike. So that would be, you know, clearly contrary to market expectations. Yep, it certainly would. Um, you know, and then you've got this lurking issue around US fiscal unsustainability. And so we all know it's there, but it's it's, you know, virtually impossible to predict when the market might start to worry about that. So that's one that, you know, we we think about. Yeah, but how long can that go on for? I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. but being the reserve currency, the US dollar being the reserve currency, that obviously helps. I mean, does that mean that, that sustains them for a bit longer? Yeah, I think it probably gives them, you know, more more rope than than perhaps other countries would would necessarily get. But um, you know, at some point I think the market it becomes will, an issue. Yeah, it becomes an issue yeah, and yeah. you know, it's anyone's guess as to when that is. And then I guess you know, geopolitical developments we've all, I think, learned in the last couple of years that these things are, are now very much, you know, part of the BAU environment for investors. Um, but for us, you know, here in Australia, you know, we've been lucky in the sense that most of them that have occupied investors' um, sort of time and, and thought ha- have been, you know, a long way away from this part of the, the world. And I guess there's always a, a risk that, um, you know, with some of the stuff going on in our region that some of those geopolitical issues escalate um, closer to home, which you know, I think would be you know, a, a reasonable event for, for local financial markets. Well, Sally, it has been fantastic talking to you on the uh, morning Likewise. call all through this year. And I know you're spending Christmas uh, in a very secret place uh, <laughs> that you and I both know. And uh, look, we won't tell anyone about it. We will uh, keep Indeed, it. Indeed, let's keep it secret. Yeah, we will <laughs> keep it our secret. Uh, but all the kangaroos on the streets and all that sort of stuff, beautiful beaches. <laughs> you're going to have a fantastic time. I'm jealous. But thanks for rounding off the year for us, Sally. And uh, you have a great Christmas. Great. Thanks very much, Bill. And I'm getting new eyes for Christmas, you know, just like the $6 million man, if you uh, remember that. Only people of a certain vintage would remember probably the $6 million man, which would be exactly the same vintage uh, that are the people who need to get new eyes. So wish me luck with that. And we are back on Wednesday, the 10th of January. So two and a bit weeks uh, just for us to restore our sanity. Thanks for being with us this year. I'm Phil Dobby for NAP. Have a great Christmas. See you in the new year. The Weekend Edition. 